If I am saying that virtual reality can be just as good as, or better, as some have recently argued, than our lived experience, they might argue that it's more varied or it's more engaging, entertaining, whatever. But I, what I wondered is, is whether that's not increasingly plausible to the degree that through our devices, we've already attenuated our experience of the world, that we've so narrowed our vision that we're no longer sensitive to the wonder, the beauty, the remarkable character of the world that is present all around us at all times, even if we are not necessarily extremely wealthy or have all of our consumer dreams met, that there is still a remarkably beautiful and, and engaging world around us, communities that can be rich and vibrant, such that if we have lost sight of that, right, through our the narrowing of our vision through our devices, then that idea that the virtual world can be just as good or better might be more plausible. We've already maybe have impoverished our experience somewhat voluntarily in such a way that it makes it seem feasible to say, well, sure, let's just continue to augment the, the virtual experience and it'll be just as good. Whereas I think somebody who maybe might be more attuned to these goods and this beauty would find that argument just on the face rather uh, ludicrous. Welcome to Freedom Matters, where we explore the intersection of technology, productivity and digital well-being. I'm your host, Georgie Powell, and each episode we'll be talking to experts in productivity and digital wellness. We'll be sharing their experiences on how to take back control of technology. We hope you leave feeling inspired, so let's get to it. This week we welcome Michael Sucasus, author of the revered Convivial Society, a newsletter about technology and society. He is also Associate Director of the Christian Studies Centre of Gainesville, and has written for The New Atlantis, The New Inquiry, Comment Magazine and Real Life Magazine. He is also the author of a forthcoming book, 41 Questions, Technology and the Moral Life. In this eye-opening conversation, we discuss how tools influence our interactions with our environment, how to think about attention, why Twitter is a devil's bargain, and how virtual reality may well be utopia unless we start to look up. If this episode makes you think differently about technology, then email us at podcast at freedom.to. We'd love to hear from you. Michael, welcome to the Freedom Matters podcast. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. It was a pleasure. Yeah, honored to be on here. Uh, also thrilled to just hear that you are also a freedom user, which we didn't know until we just started having conversations. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> and as I confess, I should probably use it more than I do. <laughs> so I wanted to start by just getting to know you a little bit more. And we were talking before about how your private life is quite difficult to work out um, online, which is, I guess, in keeping with a lot of what your writing is all about. And I'm interested in less about what you do, but how your writing, given this is a series on self and self-discovery, I'm interested to understand a little bit about how your writing over the years has helped you to learn more about yourself. And if that is something you've considered mm -hmm. as your writing career has progressed. Yeah, certainly. The first thing that comes to mind, it's a dictum that's certainly not original to me, but that I think holds true, at least in my case. And, and that is that um, I have found that writing clarifies thinking or that writing even is a form of thinking. Mm. And so I began writing online in an effort to 
helped me think through, I was in a graduate program at the time, to process books that I was reading, arguments that I was encountering, and in, in ex- trying to express through writing, it, it certainly crystallized and clarified my thinking on, on the various topics that, that I was learning about. Mm-hmm. So it's certainly helpful in that regard. A lot of my writing about technology simply stemmed from an attempt to pay close attention to how technology was shaping me or how it was how it was making me feel or, or how it was shaping my perception of the world. So just kind of sitting and feeling my way through the use of, of certain technologies, it was a way of then feeding my writing about these issues so that they were, it was less abstract and grounded in my own experience, which I suspected might also be the experience of others. And so in order to write well about technology, I think then that I found it easier to do that when I was more reflective about my own practices and even just phenomenologically how the experience of technology was shaping my encounter with the world, with others and and with myself. Michael writes broadly about a wide range of technologies from the table to light bulbs through to the metaverse. He begins with understanding how technology impacts how we exist in our own bodies because those technologies then impact our experiences with our environment. I think one of my starting points in thinking about technology is is the idea that we're fundamentally embodied creatures. You know, the body is an essential element of how we think, how we feel our way through life, how we encounter ourselves and others. And, and sometimes the story of modernity is, is framed as a story of, the, of these dualisms. And one of those dualisms is, is mind and body. And I think that's a misleading way of thinking about the human person. So if the body is an essential aspect of how we make our way in the world, and the seat of our desires and the, the home base, as it were, of our habits that become our character, then the tools that we take in hand seemingly become very important, right, as they mm-hmm. interface between the body and the world. One of the other uh, ways of looking at technology that was very influential for me is a school of, of a philosophy known as post-phenomenology, and so it's approach to technology that's re- tries to understand the way that uh, technology mediates perception. Mm-hmm. So these both intellectual and more concrete realities fed into the way I typically analyze or think about a given tool. There are many uh, tools that very much enter into the circuit of mind, body, and world. And so to just pay attention to how that circuit is shaped or disrupted or augmented or strengthened or whatever the case may be by the tools that we introduce into that circuit, I think is a very valuable way of thinking about our technologies. And a lot of it is a matter of even just how we carry our body. What Mm -hmm. postures do certain technologies induce in us? Mm -hmm. What do we find our bodies doing in response to our interactions with technology? I think it was Linda Stone, a researcher who a decade or more ago uh, coined the term email apnea to get at this interesting habit of breathing in a very shallow way when we're interacting online. She's expanded this beyond email to just our interactions with computers generally. And so that's a very interesting bodily consequence of what we might ordinarily think of as a kind of purely intellectual activity. Mm-hmm. So being attentive to all these things, or even to the way that lighting affects our circadian rhythms, these are all ways, I think, of thinking about the consequences of technology when you start with this 
premise that we, we are embodied creatures and what happens to our body matters to us greatly. I, all I can think about as you're talking here is these kind of the images of the devolution of man as we become more and more hunched again over our <laughs> screens and curled back right, to yeah. whence we first yeah. came. I, I remember an early meme to that effect. Yeah. yeah. And and when you think about that, and obviously we're quite interested in screens in particular, what have you been your observations in terms of how portable or even kind of computers have started to impact the way that our body is able to express itself in its environment? Where my own thinking goes immediately here is, for example, to what happens to our openness to the full range of the world and and the experience beyond our heads Mm. when there is a beacon to our attention that's always with us, that we carry always in hand. I, I, I will confess, and I've confessed this publicly before, I don't have a smartphone in part for this reason, and, and I find that it, I certainly don't have the willpower to resist to the degree that I would like to the way in which I might respond to every particular prompt or notification, or even apart from notifications, to just seek the phone for a distraction. And so when I'm in the world, walking down a street, sitting outside somewhere, interacting with another person, that temptation, for me, it takes the structure of a temptation, is very powerful. And it redirects my attention in ways that I think are often unhelpful. Mm -hmm. I would say primarily what I would think of the portable, ubiquitous screen, even, even sometimes when we don't necessarily even have it in hand, but just because it is accessible, it is almost an accoutrement of the body, may limit our vision our experience of the fullness of reality that unfolds before us. And I think there's good reason to avoid that. Not not from the premise that the smartphone is of itself necessarily a bad thing, but that there are good things that are worth attending to. There are habits of attention that are worth cultivating. And that this tool for some people, uh, myself included, sometimes becomes an obstacle to the cultivation of those habits of attention and care uh, and even contemplation of the world beyond my own, my own head. And that actually brings me really nicely onto the next point, which is another area of your writing that I found really interesting, is this concept of the discourse of attention and actually what what is attention and why is it important? Yeah. And there have been lots of people we've spoken to, even on the podcast, been talking about how smartphones are, are effectively just an attack on our attention and distraction has never been more, <laughs> more easily available. But I think what, what you've done is ask the really important question of actually, hang on, if our attention isn't going into these devices where actually should our attention be going and what what is good attention and lots of people talk about how it's very dangerous now that we can't sit down and read a book and I think you asked the important question of actually is that what we need to be doing is that what attention really is so perhaps you could elaborate a little bit more on your concept of attention and, and why this sort of questions around attention are really important Sure. And and I think this is part of the idea here is that w- so much of what I call the tension discourse is recurring waves of, of books and articles, essays that uh, do consider the fate of attention in an age of digital devices. And part of what was interesting to me is that this is only the latest wave. And so there have been, since the 19th century, these recurring waves of, of attention discourse. But a lot of the writing over the last decade about attention, and I certainly wouldn't say all of it, but a lot of it analyzes the the ways in which digital devices may be hampering our capacity to pay attention to the world. But 
I thought it, it was a good occasion to ask what exactly ought we to be paying attention mm. to? And I think this is always a, a good question to foreground, right? What is the good we're after and how do our tools and devices hinder that pursuit or sustain it or encourage it? Obviously, this the question of goods gets into a question of values, of morals. For some people, there, there may be a religious spiritual dimension to what you know, ought to hold our attention. But I would say one point of, of commonality is it is good to give another person our attention, to attend to them as somebody worthy uh, of our attention when we're interacting with them and speaking with them. And so if attention is a kind of capacity uh, to focus on something or someone, then it, it takes on a, a kind of moral imperative because it's not just about being able to read crime and punishment or war and peace. Mm-hmm. It's about the ability to be fully present before another human being when we're interacting with them, whether it's a serious and engaged conversation or whether it's just passing a cashier at a checkout aisle, for example, where it's so easy to just never make eye contact, never acknowledge the person before us. In other words, never attend to them. I've come to like that phrase a little bit better, attending to rather than paying or giving attention, uh, only because it, it seems to suggest this aspect of care, that, mm. that part of what our attention is for is to uh, direct our care for the world and for others. And so it has an, an ethical dimension too, which I think is very important and heightens the stakes in some respects as well of what's happening to this capacity that we call attention and how it is trained by our material environment, our devices. Yeah. And as I think you've written as well, to elaborate on that a bit more, it moves the conversation on from attention being this economic or value orientated kind of commodity in a way that we're always seeking to optimize for some kind of gain right and that all i did find that a lot of the economic terminology that has gathered around attention i'm not sure how helpful it may be i'm under the influence of a writer that's been very important to me Ivan illich questioning whether that language implies a, a scarcity mm-hmm. which maybe isn't really the problem maybe the problem is not that we don't have enough attention that we're not ordering our lives so as to allow us to give attention to the things that matter or that we are we're being insufficiently disciplined in our own practices or that there are social structures that are inhibiting our ability to attend to the world as we want to and so i you know i wanted to see what would happen if i simply operated this premise that, that i have all the attention i need at any given moment if only i know in that moment what it is good and right for me to attend to so that you're not beginning with this presumption of scarcity. And I don't know, I think that does some good in, uh, at least it has for me, in framing how I think about attention. Yeah, that's fascinating. I wondered, as someone who works in the productivity sector, are we putting too much emphasis on laser focus and flow? I asked Michael, could this be at the expense of other forms of attention, which are much more important for being human? Yes, certainly. I mean, two things, I suppose, come to mind. One, that there is this, it is a question of the end, right? The end for which I seek to do whatever it is I'm doing. And so why do I want to focus my attention in this way, right? To, to serve what goal, what end? And and so we, we ought to think carefully about that. And then there's the other side of attention, which is, I think, just a kind of openness to the world, right? So there's attention as that kind of beam, that comes out from our mind to the world and latches onto something and can hold on to it, which is important. But a spirit of of openness 
to being surprised by the world, being surprised by others, a receptivity. I sometimes talk about this in terms of experiencing the world as a gift mm. rather than simply a field wherein we get to actualize ourselves and our projects, but that we have to receive it in a certain way, in a certain spirit. And then it's not just a, a switch, right, where you have a dis the distracted mind and a very focused mind. Sometimes distraction can be good. Sometimes we need a kind of randomness or play in our interactions with the world. And so there's a well-ordered attention, which isn't just about constant strict focus, but that knows how to switch to various modes of attentiveness in response to the given situations. I don't know if that helps. Yeah, no, I think it definitely does think help. through that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's hugely valuable. And you said that since you've thought about the fact that you have sufficient attention in your life, you just have to learn where to place it. How do you think that's changed how you are in yourself and, and how you experience the world? Very imperfectly. And, and I want to stress because I, I don't want to lay this burden too heavily on the individual. So there are ecosystems of attention and those can be structured so as to tip the deck against a person and to simply ask a person to marshal the internal resources to resist it and can be misleading, I think, and unfair under certain circumstances. So I, I want to acknowledge that. But I, I think a lot of this sometimes comes to a point in how I relate to my children. I have two small girls, and it's very easy, especially I found a period of uh, the early pandemic when I was working from home. It's obviously very tempting to come talk to daddy during the day, and it's very tempting for, for me to say, not now, this isn't you know, a good time. And surely there is a time to say something like that, right? But it, it felt like one could frame that as a problem of uh, having too many things to pay attention to in a given moment. Or I think what this question helped me to think about is whether there's actually one right thing to pay attention to in that moment. I have to discern what that is. Sometimes it is the work that I have to complete, but sometimes it is what my, my daughter might need from me in that moment. And so once I make that decision, then it's not that my attention is divided. I actually have the attention I need. I just need to commit it to the right thing in that moment. And not always feel like you're pulled in two directions simultaneously and therefore not really achieving either. Yeah. And I think so much of the way we use technology is tied up with this desire to control, to master situations. And I think part of the reason we find ourselves so torn, maybe, or distracted or, or pulled in different directions is that we have a hard time letting go of things and relinquishing control or ceding our attention because somehow our attention, we've come to think that it's vital to this project or to this endeavor or whatever the case may be. And so sometimes it's just a matter of saying, I don't need to attend to that or mm -hmm. I don't need to care about that right now. And that can be a hard thing to do if we're invested in this idea that we must be fully attentive to something in order for it to succeed or for it to work or for it to be managed mm -hmm, well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think uh, I've, I've used the phrase that the arc of digital technology bends towards exhaustion, in part because it requires so much of us in a way that other technologies have not. You hope over time to build habits that become inclinations that then become natural dispositions to act in this or that way in a given moment, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm just starting to change my patterns of behavior that becomes very taxing to, to have to exert that kind of thought and reflection in that moment. But that over time, it becomes 
more habitual in a good way, right? That, that mm. I, I know more intuitively and instinctively what is the right thing for me to attend to. And a lot of this also has to do with things that, that are not necessarily related to technology per se. Moving on from that, let's talk about Twitter. Sure. <laughs> I've described it as a, have a devil's bargain with Twitter. <laughs> and it is, it's the only social media platform that I use at present. I'll start with the good, because I think it's important and honest to acknowledge that there certainly have been good things that have come out of my use of Twitter. And chiefly, I think, of people who, even though I have not met them in person at any point, or even had a phone call with them, I, I know them almost exclusively through Twitter interactions. I, I count these as real and genuine relationships that mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad to have made, and I would not have made Otherwise, I have benefited uh, professionally from the exposure that it has garnered some of my writing over the years. And there's certainly, there's a lot I've learned through the people I follow on Twitter that I may not have learned otherwise. Mm -hmm. And so that's on the positive side of the ledger. But on the negative side, I suppose, is that it has a kind of compulsive draw. There are times where... I catch myself mindlessly scrolling through the infinite timeline. And maybe I have in that moment some rationalization for why I'm doing what I'm doing. But if I'm more honest, I realize that I'm not, right? I'm not doing something that is ordered towards some good in the moment. I'm simply in, in a bad habit, really. Mm-hmm. And and as a lot of writers, I think, will, will attest, it's very easy to turn to Twitter when we might be stuck with a sentence and... Mm-hmm find yourself then far too long later <laughs> realizing, oh, what have, what have I been doing? So it has a compulsive draw to it that I don't think is, is healthy. I think I've managed not to make a fool of myself too badly on Twitter, but <laughs> obviously for some people that may be a little harder to do. I think it, it incites the passions in, in, in a way that obviously has been unhealthy. And there's this feedback mechanism where I think it would take a very strong will indeed to not find yourself molding yourself to the kind of feedback that you would be getting. Also, I think unhealthy for the life of the mind, but but also inculcate morally unhealthy as well. Mm-hmm. There are some days where I think just need to log off and be done with it. And I think I've tried to more recently just aim at, at a more at a stricter moderation of my use of the platform. Yeah. And I love how you also make the observation that I'll try and quote you here. Twitter diverts attention, whether we are on the platform or not, by focusing the attention of journalists, politicians, celebrities, pundits, academics, etc. And I think that's also a really key point. It's it's not just by your own interaction, it's the fact that this is shaping culture. Right, exactly. I think this is uh, the unique power of Twitter, why it punches over its weight. Some people point, you know, point out that only, I don't know what it is, 20% of Americans even have a Twitter account, you know, and a far fewer percentage use it actively. And so it might seem to be an insignificant platform by those measures. But in fact, it, it has become the focal point of the attention of many of the people who then go on to direct our attention through other uh, media. And so it has uh, a great deal of power in that way. Yeah. You mentioned real life, <laughs> and I didn't know whether or not we'd get on to talking about virtual reality versus reality, but it's also something that you've written about, so I'm going to give it a shot. Okay. I was interested by this concept that there have been arguments to say that virtual reality for many people will actually be significantly better than their reality. Mm-hmm. And therefore, for all its criticism you can see why it will be celebrated by so many people and become 
the new reality in a sense because it is so much better mm-hmm. than the live world. And I believe what you're saying is, hang on, we have to recognise that the reality we live in is actually quite heavily curated already and there is a lot that we can do to change the structures that are in place to make it better in real life so that the virtual world isn't actually better. Can you? Is that correct? And can you talk to me a bit about these various layers of reality? I think that the, the moment I began thinking along those lines, I think it was a post where someone was arguing, I think in, in the attempt to be somewhat provocative, that some people have reality privilege and that is why they... Uh, are critical of, of virtual reality because their lived experience is, is quite pleasing, right? And that many people in this world don't have that that kind of privilege. And for them, as you explained, virtual reality may be a respite. And I, I think my uh, point here is in part simply that this can be used, obviously, as an excuse to stop trying to make our communities, our cities, uh, our society... Uh, more equitable, more just, more conducive to the flourishing of all of its members. Uh, so it's as if we're saying most people uh, or some large segment of, of, of society will just never have the kinds of privilege that others do, so might as well just plug them into the matrix so then at least they have this simulation of, of a good life. And I think that that strikes me as an inc- incredibly self-serving uh, argument to make by those who would be creating these tools. Mm. And I, I would obviously want to continue to work towards a more just, equitable, and good society in which human beings from all segments of society can find a measure of satisfaction, their needs met, a measure of joy and, and meaningfulness in their own lives without needing to, in, in essence, distract themselves from their lived experience and be engaged in these virtual worlds. And I think that part of what you were drawing out as well is, you know, this that there's a a trajectory of sorts. So if I am saying that virtual reality can be just as good as, uh, or better, as some have recently argued, than our lived experience, they might argue that it's more varied or it's more engaging, entertaining, whatever. But what I wondered is, is whether that's not increasingly plausible to the degree that as we you know, discussed earlier, through our devices, we've already attenuated our experience of the world, mm-hmm. right? That we've so narrowed our vision that we're no longer sensitive to the wonder, the beauty, the remarkable character of the world that is present all around us at all times, even if we are not necessarily extremely wealthy or have all of our consumer dreams met, that there is still a remarkably beautiful and an engaging world around us, communities that can be rich and vibrant, such that if we have lost sight of that, right, through our, the narrowing of our vision, through our devices, then that, that idea that the virtual world can be just as good or better might be more plausible. Mm -hmm. There's a trajectory where we've already maybe have impoverished our experience somewhat voluntarily in such a way that it makes it seem feasible to say, well, sure, let's just continue to augment the the virtual experience and it'll be just as good. Whereas I think somebody who maybe might be more attuned to these goods and this beauty would find that argument just on the face rather uh, ludicrous. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because actually it's a rhetoric that has existed for most technologies. There's always the promise of improvement. It's the better way of doing it. It's the easier way of doing it, the more entertaining, the faster. I mean, that's why we use technology 
But I think what you're saying is, or well, I don't know, but it's sort of we need to be eyes wide open about that rhetoric and be able to look critically at the other side of the story that isn't being told. Sure. And, and I think that maybe the concept of thresholds is helpful too. It's one thing to find that a tool is helpful in, I don't know, improving the way I prepare a certain meal or the way that I construct the house. It's a tool that is helping me shape the material world. And some tools do that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that because some tools have done that and have been used to do that, that every tool, every device that is ever made subsequently will serve the same function. And so this is, I think, part of the trap of the word technology. We use the word technology to designate any, you know, blinding number of realities. And then we are tempted to make judgments such as, well, technology is good or technology is bad. When I think it's much more useful to to think of specific technologies and tools rather than to just assume that, you know, to take the position technology is itself good or technology is bad or whatever. So it's important to see how, what each technology promises, whether it meets those goals or not, and whether it, it doesn't cross certain thresholds beyond which it becomes counterproductive. That's also language from Ivan Illich, where the idea is not that a technology is good or bad necessarily, but that it, it to a certain point, achieves something good mm-hmm. and, and meaningful. But if it reaches a certain scale, uh, if it becomes sufficiently dominant in some area of life, monopolizes some particular cultural sphere, it then flips into being counterproductive and maybe even ultimately destructive. And so that's not a matter of just deciding this technology is good or bad, but to, to find its right place on this particular spectrum of, of use. And that can be a difficult thing to do, certainly even to do ahead of time to project that. But I don't think we we often don't even try. No, we definitely don't. And it's yeah. definitely not part of the tech development process to think mm. about at what point this technology has its limits. I think that threshold yeah. concept is incredibly useful, as are your 41 questions to ask <laughs> when using technology, yeah. which I'm glad to hear is going to yeah. be expanded into a book that will be available later in the year. Let's talk about your top three. <laughs> what are your yeah. top three questions that Freedom listeners should should think about and ask so that maybe they can start to understand their own thresholds with different types of tools and technology? Oh, that's a good question. That presumes that I've memorized my four <laughs> questions. <laughs> well, this will help because the ones you remember are clearly the most important. <laughs> right, right. And, and I, I'll clarify probably later next year, not okay. this year. But I, I think Depending on Twitter. One question. Right, right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. And, and how faithful I am in my use of freedom. <laughs> one question that comes to mind is, is the question, what habits does this technology inculcate in me. I think we are we are creatures of habit. I buy into a virtue ethic view of moral formation, of, of self-formation. And I think it is important to attend to how technology uses become habitual. And sometimes that, that can be a perfectly good thing. These habits can be good habits that yield good proclivities and, and build good character. When they're not, they can be very unhelpful and and even undermine our express goals for ourselves and in our community. So to be attentive to the kind of habits that that technologies inculcate in us. Another question gets at how technology mediates my perception of the other. I think this is a critically important question. We live in, in an age where there, there are many forces that are pulling us apart, pulling the fabric of society apart, if you like, are 
communication technologies often contribute to this. And so to simply ask, how does this tool, how does it encourage me to see the other, whether that's in, in emotions that it might build up in me? Is, is it optimized for my outrage mm-hmm. or more mundane things? Is it distracting me from simply making eye contact with the person in front of me? So that question of how these tools mediate these relationships, my perception of the other, I think is an important one. And then the first question uh, on the list is, what kind of person will the use of this technology make of me? And I think that's a, it's a very global question. In some respects, it, it sets the tone for all the others. But it's I think it acknowledges the fact that these tools are morally consequential, some more, some less. Mm-hmm. And so to even just raise that question, to not assume that our tools are just neutral, that what matters about them is the the specific uses that we put them to, but that they're going to mediate our experience of the self, they're going to inculcate habits in us, mediate our experience of others. I think those are, in essence, those are the questions that all of the questions are trying to get at that, at that basic concept that these tools are shaping our perception of the world, our perception of others, our communities, and that can have serious moral repercussions that we ought to be aware of. Fantastic. Michael, you've been an astonishing guest for the Freedom Matters podcast. I'm so grateful to have had this conversation. It's been a real privilege. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Wonderful conversation. So glad to be here. Thank you for joining us on Freedom Matters. If you like what you hear, then subscribe on your favourite platform. And until next time, we wish you happy, healthy and productive days.